Oh, good. Well, good evening, church. Thank you. How's everyone tonight? Uh, before we get started, um, there's an announcement I'd like to make before I forget. Steve, I'll go ahead and make it right now since it's on my mind. Uh, March 21st, um, we are going to a ministry up in the Fort Smith area called Church Outside the Walls, which I know our church has been a part of that uh, a few years ago, I guess, three or four years ago, something like that. And what it is, it's a homeless ministry to the homeless community there in Fort Smith. Our church is basically sponsoring that Wednesday night. Uh, we're going to be going down, leaving here about 5, uh, providing food. Uh, Clay is going to be leading us in about three songs, three hymns, and then I believe I'm bringing the message. Uh, of course, after this little stint of you having me bring three or four messages, that may change. But, as of right now, I'll be bringing the message. So that's going to be Wednesday, March 21st. Did I miss anything? Man, how about that? Alright guys, if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1 this evening. 1 Peter chapter 1. Looking at verse 17. I'm going to find that real quick. Verse 17. <clears throat> We're going to be reading tonight verse 17 through verse 19. We're going to read through that real quickly and then I'm going to open this with a word of prayer. <clears throat> it says in verse 17, And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for tonight, God. We thank you for this time. Thank you for everyone who is here. Father, just pray that you would be with us as we look into your word and, and dive a little bit deeper into First Peter. Father, pray that you would reveal to us the, the truth in your word. And God, as your children, we would, we would listen to it. And God, we would trust you no matter what we see, no matter what's there, whether it's challenging or convicting or encouraging. Father, I just pray that we would, we would get something tonight out of your word. Father, we love you, and I thank you for this church. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have been studying, as you guys know, probably, hopefully at this point, we've been going through the book of 1 Peter. Uh, several months ago, we started in chapter 1, looking through it, and we're in verse 17 tonight. Uh, last Sunday night, I believe, yeah, last Sunday night, we were in verse 10 and went through verse 16, and we're picking up in 17. And just a little bit of recap, because we're kind of finishing a section tonight in chapter 1. We're not finishing chapter 1, but just kind of a section that Peter has been talking about. Um, we're going to be looking at some of the things we've seen. And Peter so far has been teaching us about our salvation. Now, there's been different themes, different things that we can pull and we can draw from different places here in chapter 1, but that's been kind of the main part of what Peter has been teaching us. Right? It starts, and he tells us that our salvation, he first off tells us in verse 3 that we have been born again, that God has caused us to be born again. And then he says that our salvation, our inheritance, is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And he goes on to say in the same section that it's guarded by God in heaven for you through faith. So it's something that is imperishable, undefiled, unfaded, and actually guarded by God. And then last week we seen that he talks about this salvation and teaches us those things about salvation. And then he says, concerning this salvation, he, he starts to tell us how we should respond to this salvation that we have. What should, what should be produced in our life? And the first thing that we've seen from last week uh, in verse 13, he said, set your hope fully on the second coming of Christ. 
He says, set your hope fully on the second coming of Christ. And then the second thing that we've seen, and where we wrapped up last week, he says, be holy. Be holy for I am holy. Right? He's talking and quoting God out of the Old Testament, out of Deuteronomy, other places throughout Scripture. Right? He says, be holy, live a holy lifestyle. And we talked about real quickly, we'll talk again on that, but real quickly, uh, he talked about, and we talked about last week, that that doesn't mean that as a Christian we're going to be sin- sinless. Right? It doesn't mean that we're going to be sinlessly perfect. Right? There, are, there are people who believe that, there are people who, who teach that. We as Christians, we know from, from 1 John that we still are dealing with the flesh. Amen, church? We still have a sinful flesh that we're dealing with and we have to fight temptation and fight sin, right? It says that we have sin and anyone who says they don't have sin is a liar and the truth of God is not in them, right? That, that's two different things that we're talking about, right? Uh, John says in 1 John 1, again, is that we will sin, but then in chapter 3 he says that we, if we're in Christ, we're not going to keep on sinning. That's talking about a lifestyle. That if someone claims the name of Christ but they continue down a certain sinful lifestyle with no conviction and no remorse for their actions, that's when we should be concerned about someone's salvation, right? So, so this word holy, this, this uh, command to be holy, it means that we would live a God-honoring life, that we would be set apart from the rest of the world, that we would live differently, that we would look differently, right? So, so we see those two commands, we see those two responses uh, concerning our salvation, setting our hope fully on the second coming of Christ, and also being holy in the lives that we live. And that tonight we're going to see the third uh, of this, and that is to conduct ourselves in this life with fear, the way that we live. So we start then, we look, first off, before we get to that, he says in verse 17, if you'll look there again, by the way, Scotty said he didn't have to get out of here till 8, so I'm going to try and go to 8 o'clock. Is everyone okay with that? That's what you said, right? Okay, thumbs up from Scotty. It's not going to be at the clock, folks. <laughs> so, verse 17, first phrase we see here, it says, and if you call on him as father. So, so, so Peter here, he kind of starts this section of Scripture with somewhat of a challenge. He says, if you call on him as father. Okay, when we look at this and we look at, at the way that he's wording this and saying this, this is almost a challenge to self-examine your own salvation, to, to look inward. Paul is, or Peter is saying, do you know this God that you claim. Do you know God? And if you do, then you can be sure of your salvation. Right? This, is, this is another one of Peter's goal. This is kind of one of the truths that we see in chapter 1, besides just teaching doctrines of our salvation, that we are to live a life of being assured of our salvation. God does not want us to live in fear, Christian. God does not want us to be constantly going through our life worried and concerned that we are not saved. Right? That is where our faith should come in. We, we maybe have had seasons and times of doubting our salvation. I think everyone, most people would say that we've gone through that. I know I have. Anyone else in here gone through seasons and periods of doubting your salvation? A few of us. God doesn't want us to stay in that, right? He, he wants us to move past that point, right? So when we see Scripture like this, Peter isn't trying to get us to doubt our salvation. He's actually trying to get us to a point of being sure of our salvation, right? To, to be certain of our salvation. There are certain pastors, certain preachers that I've heard in, in recent months, recent year or two, where, where they preach a certain scripture or they make a certain claim about doubting your salvation, saying if you doubt your salvation, then you're not saved. Church, I think that that is incorrect with their goal. I think their goal is attempting to pad their numbers, to be completely honest. I believe their goal is, is attempting to get as many salvations to, salvations to the altar as they can. That is not God's goal for our life, Christian. God's goal for our life is to be sure of our salvation in Christ, 
I hope you agree because that's what God's Word tells us, right? We, we look at this and we study this, and that is Peter's goal for life. He even says that we go through challenges, we go through hardships earlier in chapter 1 so that we would understand the genuine testedness, the genuine worth of our faith, right? Kind of like you test gold or you test a precious metal to make sure that it's real. There are certain tests, there are certain things you go through. And Peter says a faith that stands up to circumstances, a faith that stands up to, to hardships is a faith that can be trusted as genuine, right? So, so this is what Peter is saying. But we see that word in there. If you look there, it says, if you call on him as father. So, so he's talking to Christians here, right? We know that these letters are they're addressed to and written to Christians and the church, right? He says, if you call on him as father. For the Christian, we call God our father. But what does that mean? Right? What, what, does, what does that mean and how, does, how should that affect our lives? And how do we look at God as our Father? I think there's two ways that we can look at God as our Father in, in two different ways. And, and one is, is kind of a more generic way. And that's looking at God as Father in creation. Okay? And what, what I mean by that, first, uh, before we look into that, Isaiah 64, 8 kind of talks to this. It says, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are potter, and all of us are the work of your hand. Right? That we might look at God and say that He's the Father in creation, that He's created everything that we see. Anyone here have an iPhone? A few of us? I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm not an iPhone fan, personally. Okay? But, but it would be the same way if someone would say of Steve Jobs, who's passed on now, but say of Steve Jobs that he is the father of Apple, Right? He was kind of the, the, the founder, the creator, kind of the mastermind behind that, that company. Someone would say, well, Steve Jobs, he's the father of Apple. He's the father of the iPhone, right? It doesn't mean that he says that the iPhone is his child, right? It just means that he, in a sense, created that. You would say that of any company, of any founder of any company. So, so that is one truth that we can say. Well, okay, yes, God is father in creation. He created everything that we see. That creation itself exists because God is, right? The only reason we have what we have, the only reason that I'm standing here, the only reason that, that we exist at all is because God exists, right? Is because He has created all things. But this goes much deeper than just saying that God is Father in creation or that He created all things. This is saying that we call God our Father in salvation. He is our Father in our salvation. Okay? This, this thought, this truth kind of starts presenting itself, or not kind of, it does start to present itself in the Gospels. And we see it with Jesus calling God his Father. One place real quickly, John chapter 5, starting in verse 16. It says, And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal to with God. Now we know that what sets Jesus apart from any other religious leader or teacher is that Jesus claimed to be God. Amen, church? Jesus said, God and I are one. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. We are one in the same. That is what we believe as Christians, that we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three in one, the Trinity, right? But, but, but this here, and Jesus talking, saying that God is his Father, they, they're focusing on that kind of in a strange way to me. That just in the next chapter, Jesus makes this, this huge, huge statement saying that he and the Father are one. Having this, this argument with these Jews, what does he say? He says, before Abraham was, I am, right? Referencing God and what he said to Moses, right? That, that's probably the greatest claim to Jesus saying, I am God, 
that, that we have all in Scripture, but it's all throughout Scripture. But the Jews here, they don't understand this relationship. right? That they, They're looking to kill Jesus because He is calling God His Father. See, see, the Jews and any other person who believes in, in God, they, they have kind of this impersonal, the, the kind of first father we talked about. They understood that God created everything and that, that God is all-powerful, but it's, it's impersonal. It only goes that far, right? To, to call God Father was, was something that was even blasphemous. It didn't make sense to them. It didn't compute to look to the God of everything and being able to say, you are my Father. You are my Father. But... Nevertheless, Christian, we are instructed that we are able to call God our Father. I wrote this down as saying that we are instructed to call God our Father, but I think it needs to be said as a privilege. We are able to call God our Father. I mean, think about that for a moment. We are able to call God our Father because He is. Now, now I have a dad. Everyone in here has obviously had a dad, right? And, and I love my dad, right? I love my dad. My dad's awesome. He's crazy. I love my dad, right? But, but it goes much deeper than that. I understand, according to Scripture, that, that is, that's my earthly dad, right? That, that is temporary. This is a temporary relationship. But me and God, we have this father and son relationship that transcends that. It, it goes much deeper than that. We look in Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, and it says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. For the Christian, God is our Father, like Jesus was able to call God His Father. And, and here in Galatians, it says our very spirit, the Holy Spirit that now indwells us and is inside of us, it brings us to that point of calling God our Father. We, we see that word, Abba, right? This word, Abba, in the original language, it's not just, not just saying Father or Dad. It, it is saying something intimate, saying like we would think today as Daddy, right? If I hear of a father-son and they're talking and the son says to their dad, Father, I think, well, that sounds very, very formal. Right? That, that doesn't seem right, doesn't, doesn't seem loose, doesn't seem casual. But if I see a child with their dad and they say, Daddy, that, that, there's something there. There's something intimate there. There's something meaningful there. And that is what that word means. That we have the Spirit inside of us as sons and daughters of God where we look to God and say, You are my Daddy. You, you are my Father. Right? You are intimately, personally, my Father. And it came at a great cost. Christian, we understand this, this, to say this, to be able to say this in the gospel and according to scripture is insane. Because Romans chapter 8 tells us that we were enemies of God. That, that everything about us before we knew Christ, we were opposed to God, just God. It wasn't God our Father, just God, the God of everything. We were opposed to Him. Scripture even says we were hostile. We didn't want anything to do with Him, Right? And in the gospel, we see God taking a group of people who were enemies, God-haters, and bringing them to the place of being His own children. Scripture tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that God has reconciled us. That word reconciled means to take two parties that were opposed to each other at one point and bring them to the place of peace. We have been reconciled back with God. But see, it, it goes much deeper than just like a treaty or a reconciliation. We think of, of history. Any history fans in here? Go ahead and raise your hand, honey. She hates history. <laughs> I like history. She hates history. Okay? Revolutionary War broke out before 1700. 1783, they, they signed the Treaty, Treaty of Paris, right? They signed this treaty, ending the war effectively after they, they, they filled out the treaty, right? Great Britain, the United States. 
They, they walk out from that. Did they look at each other? All the generals look at each other and say, okay, now we're best buddies. Is that how treaties work? Every treaty throughout history between two countries or multiple countries, they're not best friends after that, are they? They're just saying in that treaty, okay, we're just at peace now. We're not going to fight for, for whatever reason, whatever, whoever surrendered first. I know that Great Britain surrendered first, just to be clear on that. Okay? Throughout history, whoever surrendered first, this treaty is just saying we're at peace with one another. It's not saying that we're close. It's not saying that we love each other. It's not saying that, that we're friends or family. It's just is saying that the fighting has stopped. Right? It's not that God just took a bunch of enemies and, and wrote a treaty. So, okay, now we're at peace. No, it's, it's that he took a bunch of enemies and brought them to the place and the point of being able to say, you are my children, and us to look to God, the God of everything, and say, you are my Father. Jesus tells us in another place, Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, he says, pray then like this, instructing us, even, even before the cross, he says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, holy is your name. Right? We're to address God as our Father. This is the relationship now that we have between God of everything and the church. He is our Father and we are His children. We go on though, and He keeps going. In the next phrase He says, If you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. And this is where we start to see that, that Peter is placing a responsibility on the church that he's writing to. Right? Church, we are free from the penalty of our sin. We talked about that a little bit this morning. You, you will never experience, if you're in Christ, you will never experience the wrath of God for your sins. You are free from that penalty, right? Do we believe that? Great, right? Because it's, it's true. Okay? You're never, you never will experience that penalty, but we are still responsible for our actions in this life. You are still responsible for the life that you live here in this life. Our actions have consequences, don't they? Our actions have consequences. It, it's, it's popular, I think. Not in this church, but in some churches. It's pos, uh, po, uh, popular, can't talk, for someone to preach grace. To, to cr preach grace. Whenever someone in their church or in their life or in their family does something terrible, some terrible sin, something that deserves consequences, whatever it may be, to, to immediately go to, well, God's grace... God's grace, well, yeah, they messed up, but God's grace, right? A, a grace that doesn't change a person or, or doesn't discipline a person, church, that's a cheap grace. That's a cheap grace. God's grace and understanding the gospel and understanding the grace of God, that should change our hearts. That should change us and us understanding that, yes, we're saved by grace, but there is still responsibility for your action and responsibility for my actions. If I go out and do something incorrect, if I go out and do some kind of a sin, not only may there be physical consequences, but there are consequences between me and God. I remember a few years ago, I mentioned this morning that it's been about seven, eight years since I was in the BCM, and we played in the BCM band years ago. Me, my brother, her brother, a couple other guys we knew from Hebner. And we played a couple songs from this guy named, uh, well, the band was called Fee, F-E-E. -E. I don't know if anyone, anyone remembers that band or anything about that band. Um, but it was named after the lead singer, Steve Fee, Steve Fee, last name Fee. And they got, they got pretty popular kind of in, in the church realm, the, the church culture. They got really popular. Their songs got really popular. And we did kind of two or three of their really, really popular 
influential songs. And I remember, I can't remember if we were um, still in college, but I remember we were still playing these songs periodically and listening to them, and some news came out about Steve Fee, this, this front man of this band, that he had been caught in an affair. And, and of course, it's just like, well, what do we do now? Do we, do we keep playing songs? Do we stop? We, we decided to stop at the time, and we were 18, 19 years old. We didn't, we didn't know what we were doing most of the time, a lot of the times, all the time, Right? But we heard of this affair that happened, and, and man, that is, that is a terrible sin, right? That, that is a sin that hopefully this church never deals with. But, but I know that that's reality. Life happens. People make decisions. And I think of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, about verse 3. It says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that anyone who wrongs the brother in this matter, that the Lord is his avenger. Did, did you hear me there, church? God's Word says if someone wrongs another brother in the church in this matter, God is going to deal with him. It's not that you're dealing with just the consequences of the family of the things that you have done. No, God is taking the matter in His own hands. That is terrifying, isn't it? Shouldn't it be? But, but see, of course, and come to find out, this affair had been going on for about five years in his life. A couple years after, um, he came out as a solo artist, and the first song that he came out with any guesses to what the name might have been? Grace. Grace. Church, that is a cheap grace that doesn't change a man. That is a cheap grace that doesn't change the church. And church, it is a false grace. We need to understand that we still should take and have to take responsibility for our own actions. Because our God is an impartial judge. I love that word impartial. It means that God doesn't care how much money you make, doesn't care what you look like, doesn't care about your skin color. He is going to judge your deeds according to His righteousness and His righteousness alone. I love that word. He judges our actions. He judges our deeds impartially. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 5, says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom His Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Our God will discipline us. Because we are His children. Is God a God of love? Absolutely. We see that in Scripture. God is love, but He is also a just God. And He is a God who does not like being embarrassed by His children. Parents in the room, you like being embarrassed by your children in places? I was a kid once, not that long ago. I embarrassed my parents multiple times. It was never my fault, though. It was Jeremy's fault, right? God takes these matters seriously. And it even tells us here in chapter 12, if, if you claim Christ and you don't experience the discipline of God in your life, you are an illegitimate child. You're not even His. He's not going to discipline the one who isn't His. He does discipline you if you are His. It, it's a sign of His love and a sign of Him being Father. Our, our God judges impartially according to our deeds, according to the life that we produce and then we see the next part there in verse 17. It says, And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves in fear throughout the time of your exile. 
Conduct yourselves in fear throughout the time of your exile. A Christian should seek to honor God the more he or she grows. That should be the goal. That should be what we're striving for in this life, to honor the God who has saved us, to honor God our Father, honor Him in everything that we do. And the more that we love God, the more that we also fear Him and don't want to dishonor Him. That, that should grow in our understanding as we walk with Christ, shouldn't it? The man, I don't want to disappoint. I don't want to sin against. I don't want to disobey my Heavenly Father because I understand more and more how much He cares for me, how much He loves me, how much He is my Father, and how much I am His child. My dad, I mentioned him a minute ago. He would kill me if he knew I was using him as an example, but I'm going to. My dad, some of you know him, he's, he's a quiet guy. He, uh, he's pretty quiet. He, he's kind of introverted, doesn't like to talk a whole lot. And, and a lot of my personality comes from him, especially as I've gotten older and, and seen that. Um, I'm, I'm more of an introverted person. You say, well, you're, you're talking, public speaking in front of a bunch of people. It's because God has a sense of humor, church. God still called me to this. You can ask my wife, every time we go in a restaurant, I go to the corner, don't I? Dark corner. That's what I want. Dark corner away from everybody. That's, that's what I want. Okay? But my dad, he's kind of a quiet guy, and he was a quiet guy with us growing up. The disciplinary in our family, he did discipline us, but our mom was the one we were scared of. She's about this tall, and I'm still scared of her, okay? Which is, I think, how it should be, right? But my mom was the disciplinary mom, but dad was kind of a quiet guy. But man, I remember growing up, I remember getting older, and I remember, I'm remembering times right now where my dad, he would raise his voice, and, and everything stopped, right? No matter what was going on, no, no matter what me, Devin, and Jeremy were doing to, to cause problems, it just stopped, right? And, and everything kind of tightens up, and you're like, oh my goodness, we crossed a line. We went too far. And, and my dad, he's, he's a great dad. It wasn't that we were scared, that, that he was mean, or that he was going to physically harm us. It's because we grew in our understanding of how much our dad loved us and who our dad was, and how we didn't want to disappoint him. It was this reverent fear, this understanding of who our dad was and is. And that continues to grow today. How much more should that be true of us and our Heavenly Father? Where when we grow in our understanding of God's Word and we grow in our understanding of our Heavenly Father, we grow in our understanding of how we don't want to disappoint Him. That is why we conduct ourselves in fear. One of the reasons, because we understand who our God is and how we should respond to that. The second thing that we see, why we should conduct ourselves in fear, living a godly life, is because we're in exile. We see that. Conduct yourselves in fear throughout the time of your exile. The word exile means sojourning or foreign residence. Okay? This word speaks of foreign travels. Anyone in here ever traveled internationally? A few of us? A few of us have? Okay. I have a two or three times, Mexico a couple times, India once. And, and I don't know if this is true for you, but this is definitely true for me. Crossing those borders, going into a different place, especially if, if it's a place that, that you don't feel is extremely safe, you're, you're on caution, right? Like, man, I'm going to pay as much attention to what's going on around me as I can. I, I had this thought in, in India, because I think that's probably the, the most dangerous place I've been, so it kind of fits here. All right? Going into India, understanding, hey, there are guys who hate you. There are people who want to kill you, and we're may, we may see some of these people. Be careful. Don't act ridiculous, right? Be respectful to everyone. 
So, so immediately you're, you're thinking, okay, I've got to really watch myself. I've got to pay attention to the people around me. I have to pay attention to what's going on because I'm a foreigner here, right? And it's been told before, and it was told to me as I was getting ready to travel, like you're not in America anymore. You're not in, in the United States. You're not a citizen here. You're, you're a stranger. You're a foreigner. If you're causing problems, they're going to take care of that, right? Same thing, going through airport security, which, of course, is always a treat, right? Going through airport security, right? If you do any kind of suspicious behavior or act funny, what are they going to do? They're going to take it seriously, right? You're not just in your own house, in your own home. You're in someone else's territory, right? You're a foreigner. And that's what Peter says here. As a Christian, you are an exile. You're living in a foreign land. This is not your home anymore, Christian. The fact of our exile brings us to conducting ourselves in a particular way. Just like in a foreign country. I'm going to act as right as I possibly can. This is how it should be in our Christian faith. We are going to live a holy life. We're going to live to please our Heavenly Father because we understand this place is not our home. We shouldn't be living for this place anymore. That, that we are strangers here. We are aliens here. We are in exile. It, it's funny because throughout the Old Testament, whenever you hear the word exile, it was never a good time for the Israelites, was it? The exile of the Babylonians, exile of the Assyrians, right? It, it was never good, right? God always brought exile to His people, bringing His people away from the Promised Land to, to kind of refocus them again, right? To, to bring them back to the truth that they had forgotten. Well, Peter, he says, right now, Christian, in this life, you are in exile. You need to understand that this place is not your home. You need to conduct yourself in a manner of fear, understanding who your God is and understanding that this world is not your home and that it is a dangerous place. Christian, this world wants you to trip up. This world wants you to fail and fall and, and cast a bad name on Christ. It's what this world wants. It's what Satan wants. And Scripture says, live as if you're in exile because you are. Conduct yourself cautiously knowing that you have a heavenly Father who judges impartially and that this place is not your home anymore. And then Peter, starting in verse 18, he starts to sum up this section over salvation. So just to recap real quickly, I know we've been over this a lot, but I think it's important. Okay? We see verse 3, starting in verse 3, it says that we have been born again we have a salvation that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's kept in heaven for us and guarded by God. And then he says our response to this salvation should be setting our hope fully on the second coming of Christ. Right? The second thing is that we should be holy, set apart from the rest of the world. And the third thing, the thing we just studied, is conducting ourselves with fear in exile. Understanding where we are and that this place is not our home anymore. And then finally, he ends this section, starting in verse 18, and brings us back around and reminds us of the whole reason that we have salvation to begin with. So if you would, look there in verse 18 with me. And we're not going to spend just a ton of time on these verses, but we are going to get through them tonight. It says in verse 18, "...knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He says, conduct yourselves in fear. Live this life in response to your salvation, knowing that you were ransomed. That word ransomed, it means redeemed. To liberate by payment. 
Okay? It, it gives the word picture of, of setting free a prisoner of war, paying whatever the price is to set them free. Right? An illustration, I think, that, that is more uh, close, closer to us historically, of course, is the slave trade that was going on just, just two or three hundred years ago here in this country around the globe. Right? There, there were people, abolitionists, who would go around trying to stop slavery. And one of the ways they did that was actually purchasing people off the slave auction block. Right? They, would, they would redeem them. They would pay the ransom price to, to set them free. Right? And, and I remember even as a kid studying those stories and seeing those things and thinking, man, that's awesome. That is awesome that someone would do that. And that is the same word that we see here talking about our salvation, that we, Christian, have been ransomed. We've been redeemed. We've been set free by payment. That we were those slaves. What were we slaves to? We were slaves to sin and slaves to death heading for destruction. And Peter reminds us and brings us back around to the truths of the gospel, saying that you were ransomed. He goes on, from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Futile meaning empty, profitless, and ways, of course, manner of life inherited from your forefathers, right? We talk about the life, whether someone was under the law or outside of the law, we are all sinful. We look at that. We see that. Romans chapter 2, right? That, that we are all sinful. We are all deserving of death. And it says that we are ransomed from those feudal ways, inherited from our forefathers, inherited from the people uh, before us, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. It wasn't with money. It wasn't with things that are going to perish and things that, that are already around us fading away. It was with something much more valuable. It says, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We were ransomed. We were set free, not with anything physical, not with silver, not with gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He set you free. He set you free from sin, set you free from death, set you free so that you might live for Him. The thing that you were always meant to do, to live for Him. The word precious means costly. We know that it was costly because He gave it all. He poured it all out at Calvary for the salvation of you and I. It also means that we understand that it is it is dear, it's honorable, it's precious. This blood of Christ that was poured out for us. It says like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We talked about that this morning, the sacrifice of Christ. Jesus was without sin. He lived a sinless, perfect life. Church, He lived the life that you and I could not live. Anyone here? How are you doing on that sinless, perfect life? Anyone? No one? I couldn't live that life. You couldn't live that life. Jesus came and lived that life on your behalf. And he went to the cross and he took the death that you and I deserved. So that we might be ransomed, we might be brought back from these feudal ways and given salvation. You know, we, there's a lot of things in 1 Peter that uh, deal with some deeper areas of Scripture, deeper doctrines, deeper truths. But, but I love this here in, in chapter 1 because all of the things that we've looked at, some of, the, some of the more curious Scriptures, I think, talking about prophets longing for this salvation, talking about, uh, we talked about this last week, angels even longing to look into these things. Peter brings all of these, these maybe sometimes difficult truths to understand and look at all the way back around to just a simple reminder of the gospel. We must be reminded of the gospel. It's been said over and over again, uh, I've seen it said by Martin Luther, 
that we must be reminded of the gospel daily because we forget it daily. Church, this is just simply a reminder of the gospel truth. All of the deep understandings and deep doctrines of our salvation come back around to the truths that we see here that Jesus Christ died for you. It is that simple truth that propels us to live for Him. Think about that statement. Christ died for you. Let's pray tonight.